Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we have reached that point. We have reached that point where I'm probably just going to spend every intro by saying two words. I'm cold. In the words, public TV's Chuck D. <sighs> Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. I'd like to start with uh, just a quick headline I got just uh, just in the past about half an hour. Hour. Life critical fire issues found in 56% of residential blocks built by firm who installed Grenfell Tower cladding. So, my question always will forever be, why, what, what, what does it take? What does it take to send people to jail? You know, I feel we have easy and, you know, relatively rigid, obviously depending on the case, right? That's why we say case-by-case basis for a lot of things, right? But I feel, you know, in general, we're pretty... Um, we're pretty clear on, you know, what is a crime and what you should get for it, yeah? It's clear that, you know, murder, for example, be it, you know, first degree, second degree, right? We we know what murder is. We know what manslaughter is. We know what robbery is. We know what extortion, fraud. Um, we know what these things are. <laughs> so with that with that in mind and with years worth of knowledge that can be you know scraped up very very instantly that's that's, that's a benefit of being in 2024 on this earth we have the ability to scrape up a fuck ton of information per hour we have the technology, we have the ability, okay? So, with all that said, why aren't these people in jail yet? Why aren't these people that were aware of this cladding, that were aware of everything to do with this cladding, whether it be the people that made it, whether it be the people that rubber-stamped everything, greenlit everything, built everything, why are people not in jail yet? Is it just a matter of figuring out how long they should be in jail for? Because if that's the case, take your time. Because it should be a very fucking long time. People died. People could have died. If it weren't for this kind of these kind of headlines. People might still die. Because this kind of thing ain't getting replaced anytime soon. You know, so what's it going to take? What 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 is needed for people to be sent to jail? Again, we know what murder is. We know what manslaughter is, all that stuff. We know what that stuff is. So what about this? What about this? What do you want to call it? Negligence? I don't consider it negligence because I think negligence gives, and I don't know the, you know, textbook. Well, actually, <laughs> you know what? I just said we have the technology. Let's look up technology. Let's look up the dictionary definition for negligence, shall we? Negligence. Negligence. There we go. Let's, let's, let's look it up. Failure. Noun. Failure to take proper care over something. That sounds like negligence. That sounds like negligence. All of this. Grenfell sounds like negligence. This firm that approved all this cladding. Sounds like negligence to me. So, with all that said, what I say once again, ladies and gentlemen, what does it take for people of this nature committing these crimes, killing people, what does it take to put them under the fucking jail? Who knows? Apparently, don't know the answer yet. Weird, isn't it? 
anyway. This will move succinctly to um, the first topic, first segment of the episode. But before that, formatties before we begin. Email, socials, writing, all that in full show notes, as well as music for the show and podcasts under 5EPN over on D- Digging in Digits. We just did one of my top five all time in Big Daddy Kane. Very much enjoyed that episode. Very much enjoyed listening to Big Daddy Kane from start to finish. Um, it pertained to his albums. And uh, we're keeping that up. We're, we're just going through a lot of goats in the next few weeks. So if you ain't subscribed, wherever you listen, um, please go do so. And obviously here, vice versa as well. Um, but yeah, that's it. And then beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where Oklahoma 13-year-old is believed to be first person ever to beat Tetris, which I didn't know you could beat Tetris. <laughs> um, um, uh, yeah, just did not know that existed. I thought it just, you know, one of them infinite games that keep going. You know, just same vibe as Temple Run, except it's Tetris. And that was the OG, wasn't it? It's Tetris. So it's, you, keep, you keep playing Tetris and touch Tetris. The Tetris never stops. The Tetris never stops. Anyway, um, South Africa accuses Israel of genocide via the ICJ, um, International Court of Justice, of course. Um, at least 95 people were killed, more than 210 wounded after a pair of Islamic State bombings at the Rainy Cemetery. Head of Britain, p- Britain's police chiefs, so not so not just the police chiefs, the head of the Britain's police chiefs, um, says the force is, quote, institutionally racist, unquote. Outstanding. So here we go. Here we go. This this is this is the cycle of you know of improving our society. This is where the cycle begins, right? It begins at acknowledgement. Now that we have acknowledged it, what are we going to do about it? And there's plenty of solutions. We've talked about these solutions on this here show before. Um, in my mind, when it comes to the Met Police, especially uh, maybe different, obviously for more local polices, but for the things like me- the Metropolitan Police, obviously the head of police chiefs is you know a bit more broad, but you know for the Met Police specifically, fucking cut them down, cut them up, divest, di- di- was it diversify them, you know, don't have it as just Met Police, have it as um, Newham Police, have it as Camden Police. Yeah, localise it a bit more. That's my solution anyway. We talked about that a few months ago. But obviously, I'm sure there are plenty more. That's what we have to do now. We've done the acknowledgement part. And that's actually kind of the hardest because people just refuse to acknowledge some shit. Especially when it comes to racism. They just refuse to acknowledge it. Anyway. And lastly, German football legend Franz Beckenbauer dies age 78. So, let's begin with... Well, we've well, I've kind of mentioned it in What Does It Take um, to Put People Into Jail and also mentioned Israel. So let's combine them both. So I found this uh, opinion piece via Middle East Eye and I've gassed Middle East Eye for the past few months, obviously, because um, of their just genuinely um, top tier and more importantly, extremely consistent reporting on Israel and Palestine over, well, even before October seventh, of course, I'm sure they, I'm sure they kept doing it. But obviously, um, with their you know consistent updates and um, really good reporting on it, um, they've become very important um, to me personally in terms of you know just getting the knowledge and actually getting information in. Um, but yes, I found this um, opinion piece via Middle East Eye um, by actually the founder of Middle East Eye and David Hurst. Um, I think he's the founder anyway. Let me just uh, scroll all the way down because for some reason people put the place i hate when publications put the bio at the bottom i feel like it should be at the top or within the you know artist kind of profile but artist <laughs> music uh, within the uh, journalist profile um so yes he's co-founder editor-in-chief of middle east Eye. there you go um so let's get started on this this is um letting and this is a story about um british israelis um going to gaza to basically commit genocide and i'm just wondering um you know this this dropped in uh three weeks ago um three weeks six days ago specifically for the, for the last update on this i've loved that i think every site should have that um and uh yeah so nothing's happened but um 
just find that interesting. But let's get into this. This is called Letting British Israelis Fight in Gaza is a threat to the UK's rule of law. So let's jump right in. British nationals who are part of Israel's military machine that commits war crimes should be open to prosecution on return to the UK. But will this ever happen? Now, my question is, is this a rule? And if it's not, why the fuck isn't it? Because I feel like they're just going there to commit murder. And that's just... And they should be prosecuted for that, but anyway. Uh, One man rejoiced at the images of Palestinian men uh, from... um, going to probably budget it, Beit Lahia, Lahia, um, in northern Gaza, stripped to their underwear, barefoot, and being forced to sit on the street. The images are stunned and revolted the rest of the world in equal measure. He was Aray Yitzhak King, the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. King wrote in a post on X, formerly Twitter, quote, if it were up to me, I would have dispatched D9 bulldozers and put them behind mounds of dirt. and would have given the order to cover all these hundreds of ants while they're still alive, unquote. King is a British citizen whose parents emigrated from Britain to Israel. He rose to the rank of lieutenant in the Israeli army, Jivati Brigade, and has since made it his life's mission to Judaize uh, occupied uh, East Jerusalem. I didn't realise Judaize was a word. Interesting. King still holds British citizenship. 2020, he wrote to Boris Johnson, then Prime Minister, complained about Britain voicing, quote-unquote, grave concerns over the construction of settlements in the Jerusalem area. Quote, as a British citizen, as well as emanating from a family with close ties to the Conservative Party in my kingdom. Ooh, gave the ghost there. (laughs) What kind of ties are we talking about? I feel like, you know, someone should do some look up on that. Um, I was both surprised and dismayed to read that Britain has joined several European countries in reiterating grave concerns regarding construction in the Jerusalem area, unquote. Case said construction in Jerusalem was an intent, inter, internal Israeli matter, and just as Israel would not presume to discuss or dispute the borders of London or Paris, he would have expected the same respect from, quote-unquote, your government. And this obviously, ironically, comes uh, in the uh, recent reporting. Um, I don't know if it's been um, uh, solidified yet, um, but there, I saw reports of um, Tony Blair apparently being uh, hired to um, potentially do something pertaining to the Palestinian people and I I sorry, I, I just I can't I can't fathom of all fucking people to have that guy A in the Middle East ever again, um B having any decision power over anybody ever again and C being given powers super super similar to the people that made India and Pakistan what it is today, making Israel and Palestine what it is today. This is this is the root of Britain, guys, and they're literally doing the exact same thing in 2024. I can't, I, I just can't. Okay, continuing on. As a British citizen, King would be of interest to the Metropolitan Police's war crimes team. <laughs> they have a war crimes team, okay. Uh, which has a responsibility to support the ICC, International Criminal Court, investigations to any war crimes committed by Israel or Hamas in the region since October 7th. Should King reappear in the UK, he might have to answer for comments he made about the Palestinian people. Uh, I feel like... Okay, there's gonna be, I feel like there's going to be a lot of quotes here. That I'm, um, I feel like I'm going to have to cut this short at some point because it's um, kind of lengthy, but I kind of want to get through it just for the importance. So let me stop talking and just get on with it. Quote, um, they aren't human uh, beings and aren't, uh, are not human animals. They're subhuman and that's how they should be treated. Eradicate the memory of Amalek and never forget. Amalek is in reference to a biblical verse calling for the extermination of every man, woman, and child and their livestock belonging to an ancient enemy of, Ju- of the Jewish people. King is far from unique. There is Elon Levy from North London, who has become spokesman for the Israeli government. Levy has consistently tried to downplay the lethality of Israel's bombing campaign. Levy used uh, data proved later to be false, attempting to show that Israel was achieving less than eight, 0.8 deaths per airstrike. That's, quote, that's what world-leading precision looks like, Levy tweeted. Peter Lerner, who moved from Israel from Kenton, North London, when he was 12, has become the face of the, of the Israeli army. As a lieutenant colonel, the, uh, he is the army spokesperson for the international media. Lerner dismissed the idea that Israeli army response was disproportionate. 
He said in an interview with LBC that proportionality was about military necessity, not about the number of civilians killed. As of writing, the Palestinian death toll is well, it's past 20,000, obviously, so let's just say that. Um, at this point, it was 18, but it's now 20. I would like to see Lerner and Levy defend that number of deaths before the ICC or any court of law in his native Britain. And obviously, this comes before um, South Africa putting... Um, Israel, uh, accusing Israel of genocide via the ICJ, so um, just note that as well. Uh, both seem to be, uh, both seem to me to be justifying war crimes. Then there is Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, the Scottish colonel used as the, used as the voice of the Israeli army. Hecht, who moved from Israel from Luton Mearns uh, in the 1980s, promised in the earliest stages of the, of the war that the Israeli army would respond very, very severely to the Hamas attack. There is also Zechariah Zechariah Deutsch Deutsch, uh, like Deutschland Deutsch, um, who took leave of absence as Jewish chaplain to several universities in Yorkshire to join the fighters reservist. Deutsch, uh, how do you go? Well, well, sorry, sorry. How do you go from a ch- Jewish chaplain to several universities to then? Find- Jesus Christ, the lives people live. Um, Deutsch is an Iranian citizen um, who has a pastoral role to students in the University of Leeds in Sheffield. Sent a series of videos to his students defending the Israel Army's campaign in Gaza. Mm, that is ugly. Oh, that's an ugly thought. Imagine that. Imagine your... Oh, gosh. Now, imagine your pastoral, whatever the fuck, like Jewish chaplain just hitting you up while you're in uni and just like, hey, guys, war crimes are good. All right, continue on. Uh, quote. If you know the real story of what's been going on here in Israel over the last thousand years, and over the last hundred years, no one can deny that Israel's dealing with this war in the most utmost morality and good ethics, said Deutsch in one video in which he appears to be wearing an Israeli military uniform. The actual number of British Jews and dual nationals fighting in the Israeli army is a secret, uh, which both Israel and the British government keep close to their chest. Sam Stank uh, is uh, an Israeli army reservist from Stanmore in North London. Not North London is here. Um, that makes me ashamed to uh, tell the Times that judging from the number of his friends in the army, there were, quote, hundreds if not thousands, unquote, more Britons fighting in Israel. But the numbers involved are not the only question the British government refuses to answer. It was asked by Baroness Saeed Avasi um, after she resigned from the cabinet over Britain's support for the Brit- uh, previous Israeli occupation of Gaza in 2014. That same question is being asked today by lawyers acting for the ICJP, Justice for Palestinians, is the last bit. Um, it, it is this, quote, It is a criminal offence for British citizens to travel to Israel and or the occupied Palestinian territory to fight for the Israeli army or any other state or non-state actor. Um, is it a crime? Sorry, this is... a uh, this is a question. Is it a criminal offence? Unquote. There you go. Uh, it is a question that neither Foreign Office nor the Home Office wants to answer. In fact, when Middle East I put this question to them, their press offices referred the question to each other. There is a simple reason for the silence. If they say, it is not a criminal offence for a dual national citizen, uh, citizen of Britain and Israel to fight in the Israeli army on the grounds that Israel is a state actor, how do they explain their ex- explicit prohibition of Britain's fighting in Ukraine? After the Sun, of all places, revealed that 19-year-old Coldstream Guard was among four missing uh, British soldiers to have travelled to fight the Russia and Ukraine, uh, Grant Shapps, then Transport Secretary, told troops, quote, You cannot just get up and go, adding that Britain's travel to Ukraine risked worsening a, quote-unquote, dangerous situation. Excuse me. Britain obviously did not want to be, uh, become even more belligerent in the Ukraine war than it was already by flying long-range missiles to Kiev. And it was not shy of telling the citizens to stay out. The Foreign Office advice on Ukraine Ukraine states unequivocally, quote, if you travel to Ukraine to fight uh, or to assist others engaged in the war, your activities may be may amount to offences under UK legislation and you could be prosecuted on your return, unquote. There you go. But no such qualms are expressed about Israel. Funny how that works, eh? When this question was first uh, raised by Varsi, uh, the government hid behind the fig leaf of say actors and non-say actors. They also said that Israel did not declare war in the 2014 operation against Gaza. Oh, right, so they just did it. Nice. Didn't even declare it, they just did it. Uh, Varsi found this intolerable and said so in an interview with MEE. Quote, if you go out there and fight for any group, you will be subject to prosecution when you get back. If you go out and fight for Assad, I assume, under our law, that is okay. That can't be right, she said. The only reason we allow the loophole to exist is because of the IDF, uh, because we are not brave enough to say if you hold British citizenship, you make a choice. You fight for our state only. That has to go out strong, unquote. 
When the same question was put in Parliament, uh, Tom Tugendhats, uh, the Home Office Minister for Security, made two points that contradict each other. The first was that UK recognises the right of U- of dual nationals to sign up for military service in the country of their other nationality. In itself, a deeply problematic contention. Does the UK recognise the rights of British Assyrians to fight for President Bashar al-Assad? But Tugendhat went on to say anyone who travels to conflict zones to engage in unlawful activity should be expect to expect should expect to be interrogated on return. I feel like there's a lot of information here that should give to the point of these British Israelis should be prosecuted. Just me, dunno, just just my thoughts, what I'm getting out of it, don't know about you. Continuing on, how long do I have? Uh, okay, we have a few paragraphs, I'm already 20 minutes into this episode. Oops, okay, this might go over an hour. Clearly, everything in Israeli, uh, the Israeli army is doing to the civilian population of Gaza. Displacement, carpet bombing, turning hospitals and battlegrounds, targeting injured patients who are trying to evacuate, bombing UN shelters, forcing mothers to put down their babies and leave, leave them in the road, stripping civilians to the underpants and forcing one of them to carry a Kalashnikov is unlawful and a war crime in terms of long-standing international law. Being a part of the military machine that commits these heinous crimes, either as a combatant or a spokesman, would be de fact would de facto leave you open to prosecution of the to UK. Will this ever happen? The UK government under any Prime Minister will strain every sinew to stop it from happening. Despite their frequent protest- protestations, each decision is a matter for the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions. But each government which kicks this burning question under the carpet for another few years should be should be aware of what this loophole is doing to community relations here at home. Is it really right for a British Jew to fight for Israel? Israel in what he or she assumes in this hour of need and not for British Palestinians to join non-prescribed groups like Fatah um, I'm seeing I say that right and uh, defend his village or town in the occupied West Bank is it right to take no action against Britons who justify war crimes while prosecuting Palestinian supporters demonstrating on London streets for hate speech Ooh, that's a bar. what can be more hateful than wanting to see innocent civilians buried alive how can this be? How can this double standard apply without affecting community relations in the UK? Surely, the only fair answer is to ban all British nationals from fighting abroad, no matter what the country or the cause. Israel is not only becoming the graveyard of efforts to enforce international law and produce rules-based world order; it is very specifically becoming the graveyard of the rule of law in Britain. Okay, <sighs> I have so much to say and so little time. <coughs> I know this isn't um, comparable in, you know, the it's, it doesn't fit neatly into it, but I'm kind of just also be getting the image of Shamima Begum in my head. Obviously, she, um, what was she, like 15 when she, um, quote-unquote, defected and, you know, went to, got basically, got, well, she got groomed to be in Islamic State. Um, what's the excuse for these people? What's, what's the excuse for these dudes? How old are these dudes? I'm assuming very old. Um, and they're just openly just going to Israel and becoming spokesmen and, you know, joining the Israel war machine, Israel genocide machine. And <laughs> like I said, there are many other reasons. So is it fine for British Palestinians to go fight for Hamas? No, that, that, that doesn't make sense, does it? Doesn't That doesn't fit logic at all. Um I fi- I figure the same. Just make it a blanket blanket rule. No, if you have a British passport, you cannot go fight for other countries. What's the point of national? What's the point of being a national if you can just do what you want on that front? You know, if it's it's different. It feels like you know a private milit- mercenary thingy, right? You know, you see in the films and you see all these like, um, you know, you watch the Expendables and they're all like, you know, the the old American Jason Statham's in there, right? And there's nothing about there's nothing about nationalism in that sense, right? They're just private mercenaries. It's a private company, quote unquote, right? So what's the difference? So what happens when it's a you know you are you are fighting for the Israeli army? That's what you are doing. You are fighting for a nation state. Um, in this case, a um, uh, an apartheid state. I, I I don't see the logic here. I don't see the logic here. And 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 you know, obviously I know the answer here. They just choose not to care about this. They kick the can down the road and they just go la 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 la. Can't hear you. Can't hear you. Can't hear you. When this has already been brought up by a fucking conservative already in Baroness Varsi, a conservative. Can't believe it. I just it doesn't make sense. It just. <laughs> It is is the the logic is just so palpable. 
and um I can't help but kind of laugh because they're just so barefaced in their bullshit. Because you know, if a if any any Palestinian British dude went over and went over to the West Bank and started shooting the get, you'd fucking hear about it everywhere. You'd hear about that shit in the Sun. You'd hear about that shit in Talk TV. You'd hear about that shit on GB News, and then you'd hear about it on the rest of mainstream media because everyone's a fucking sheep. You know exactly what would happen, but for some reason this just goes under the rug. No, 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 nobody really talking about it that much. It's nice and um. You know, it's just it's just something that a couple of people talk about, and uh, you know, people like me. That, but you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't look, I don't look for how many listeners listen to this, right? But you know, I chart in a couple of countries here and there. Shout out to the likes of Uganda, Kenya, um, Armenia for some reason, right? Just you know, shout out to those places. But um, you know, I get, I get, I get a couple of listens here and there, and this is why, this is why I do this kind of thing, so you can get this kind of information. Because you ain't getting this shit anybody anywhere else. I don't consider myself alternative media, and I don't know why I'm suddenly gone into this uh, philosophical um, uh, rumination on what what I am as a as as I do this show. But you know what I mean. This is this is information that you don't get, and you have to always, 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 always ask yourself this reason. Ask yourself this question: Why? Why don't you get this information on BBC? Why don't you get this information on ITV News or your Channel 4 News? And you might, sometimes, you might get a trickle of of good information on this front, um, a good story on this front, because this is a story. This is not just a story. This is an issue. Um, like David, like her said, this is a, this is a, a, a significant um, crisis for what UK law is. So you're telling me that you can be you you you're not going to get prosecuted. So if these guys set foot in Britain again, they're not going to be prosecuted. Is that what you're telling me? Because the fact that you're kicking the can down the road and not even asking the question and referring, and if you're the Home Office or the uh, Foreign Office, referring back to yourselves to each other. Oh no, ask the Home Office. Oh no, ask the Foreign Office. Like, <laughs> that's not that's not encouraging. That's not encouraging. You're so uh, they 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 really put their foot down for a lot of things. Um, but for this, uh, no, just, I'm just timid, I'm in R in, just, no, oh, don't know, just go to, go to the, go to the other, go to the other office and just ask them, just keep the count down the road, it's disgusting, um, but it is what it is, and now you know the story, so, um, and like, like it, like, um, like dude said in the article, there's probably many more, there was only a few names and there's probably a fuck ton more, a fuck ton more of British Israelis killing Palestinians. And then maybe, I fucking hope not, coming back here and acting like nothing happened. So speaking of another existential crisis, um, let's talk about universities, let's talk about education. Um, so this is an article I found in kind of relation, I was trying to find something on Claudine Gay, um, who was the, well, now um, uh, ex, uh, I think, what is it, president of Harvard? I forget the uh, particular um uh, I forget the uh, the designation, but yes, um, president of Harvard. Just to say that um, over, I think he was well over a scandal that right wing nut jobs uh, put forward, and I wanted to have a you know just just try and find something based on that. But then I found something a little more interesting. Um, obviously, you know maybe talk about the Claudine Gay stuff maybe at some point. Who knows? Um, because it's a you know genuine story and a genuine existential crisis for the. In this case, the U.S. university uh, community, U.S. higher education uh, community. Um, but you know, I found this, and I found it much more. Uh, you, know, you, you know, I'm a little bit of an anarchist. I'm sorry. It's just, just, just a titchy bit of an anarchist. So I found this funny. You know, when I just when I see a uh, uh, um, when I see a piece that's called "Let's Seize the Opportunity," this is opportunity to destroy Harvard. I. <sighs> It just just appeals to me, yeah. It just just appeals to me, it warms me. Uh, this is uh, by uh, John Schwartz uh, by the Intercept, and let's jump right in. 
Should Claudine Gay have resigned as president of Harvard? Yeah, I got it, got it, I got it right. President of Harvard, um, are conservatives right? The rabid, uh, rabidly pro-Hamas left has captured Harvard. Are liberals correct that the fascistic right has uh, launched an all-out assault on academic freedom at Harvard? The New York Times have, have ex- has explored these questions about Harvard over the course of almost 17, excuse me, 17,000 articles. These are indeed fascinating topics, however, they ignore a key issue. Now, for anyone with a progressive perspective, Harvard should neither be reformed to eliminate its wokeness, nor protected from the forces of reaction. Rather, it should be raised to the ground. Raised, uh, by, in spelling here, R-A-Z-E-D. Not raised, um, like, you know, raising a child. Then, after Harvard has been raised, we must salt the earth, Carthage style. So a new Harvard does not grow in its place. Next, we have to destroy the rest of the Ivy League. Finally, anyone with enough energy left over uh, should sail an emissions-free ship through the Panama Canal to California and obliterate Stanford. Let's start with a story that explains why I'm so personally committed to this cause. Then we can move on to a more rational expression of why you should be too. On January 16th, 1991, I was a senior at Yale. That night at 9pm, George H.W. Bush, President of the United States and Yale alumnus, announced the commencement of the first Gulf War. And there is a YouTube link if you want to spin, for some reason, spin that clip. Um, I mean, I say for some reason, obviously, there is a reason, but, you know, I'm not going to spin the clip because I know, I know I'm, they just said what it is, so I don't really need to see the clip. Anyway, uh, this was a time of such barbarism that there was no internet. Almost no students had a television in their room, so the only way I could find out what was happening was to go to my dorm's common room, which did have a big TV. When I got there that night, there was a single person there. She was not a Yale student, and she was not a Yale professor. She was a woman who worked in the dining hall. Anyone familiar with Yale and New Haven, Connecticut, will know this means she was likely either Italian-American or African-American. She was African-American. She was watching CNN with fervent concentration. I soon learned this was because her son was in the Marines and was stationed in Saudi Arabia on the border with Kuwait. And she was, she did not say this, terrified that she that he was about to die. I had never been, I never before seen a human being whose very atom was vibrating with fear. It was impossible for me to not think about the debate about co- the coming war I'd already had with your friends. Some supported it, some didn't. But we all wanted to talk about whether we would be willing to fight in it if the draft was reinstated. I finally said, this is all moot, M-O-O-T. If things go so badly that they have to draft people out of Yale, the US government will wrap it up. The people who run America don't care about this so much that they'd risk their own children. This sounds like a nice tale about how sensitive and wise I was as a young man. There's more to it though. As I watched Baghdad being bombed and untold uh, and untold numbers of humans being converted into wet red scraps of flesh, a tide of mo- a tide of emotion swept over me unbidden. It was exultation. I had no idea before that moment that this potential cri- uh, potential existed inside of me. I knew that nothing at all of the history of the Middle East or the specifics of that war, so this didn't emerge from my cerebrum, the part of our brains that thinks. It was from my amygdala, the part of our brains that probably hasn't changed much since we were Homo erectus a million years ago. I had unknowingly absorbed a vague sense that there were these dusky foreigners out there, led by too big dictator who'd gotten too big for his britches, who thought that they could defy, defy us, and were, were being taught that they could not. The us part was key. Us didn't mean America, but rather the small group of people in charge of America. And I had unconsciously come to believe that, as a Yale student, I was a member of this group's junior varsity. I find this excruciating to think about today, but I'm glad I experienced it, because it gave me a visceral sense of how the world feels to the people who ultimately run places like Harvard and Yale. So that's my personal animus. But it would be... But it should be shared by everyone who'd like the US to be a real democracy. Here's a measure of the stranglehold. And uh, by the way, if you're uh, if you're you know like me, UK or um, or even any, I'm sure there's other places where um, they have this. But you know you can replace this. You can replace Ivy League with Russell Group if you're in the UK, and I'm sure in places in Europe and maybe places in Africa and other places in the world there are you know them selection of universities are just you know just just more 
um, more substantial from an education, from an academic perspective, you know what I mean? Um, you know, obviously in Russell Group is, you know, your Cambridges, your St. Andrews, I think is one, and uh, Oxford, of course, can't forget Oxford. Um, so, yeah, you can replace this. I think you can replace Ivy League pretty, pretty simply with, um, you know, Russell Group, and I'm sure there's others in the world as well. Just a note. Anyway, here's a measure of the stranglehold the Ivy League has over uh, the commanding heights of the US political system. Oh, I love stats like these. From 1989 to 2021, a period covering 32 years, five presidents, eight presidential terms, every US president went to an Ivy League school as an undergraduate or graduate. Even more incredibly, for 28 straight years from 1989 to 2017, the president went to either Harvard or Yale, or in the case of George W. Bush, both. Then the Harvard-Yale streak was broken by Donald Trump, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Joe Biden went to the non-Ivy University of Delaware. Over this time, Americans rarely had the option to vote against the Ivy League. It's not just that all of the candidates who won the elections between 1988 and 2016 went to Ivy League schools. Six of the eight candidates who lost went to Harvard or Yale. The two exceptions were Bob Dole in 1996, Washburn University, and John McCain in 2008, U.S. Naval Academy. Then look at the Supreme Court. Eight of the current nine justices went to a law school at either Harvard or Yale. The one exception, Amy Coney Barrett, replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who went to Harvard Law. On its face, our era of Ivy dominance is the sign of a society that's calcified. You need to, you need access to America's networks of money and power to rise to the tippy top, and going to an Ivy League school is now a requirement for that access. This gatekeeping would be bad enough if these schools, or anyone, could reliably measure some type of quote-unquote merit. People change all their lives, and we shouldn't have to rely on a cohort of 50-year-olds who fit through an incredibly narrow aperture when they were 18 or 22. But of course, Ivy League colleges don't actually admit students based on anything recognisable as merit. Anyone who's attended one knows they're looking for young people who are, one, extremely good at figuring out what the rules are and then faithfully following them, and two, clubbable and ingenious uh, with their elders. (laughs) I don't agree with uh, Rayhan Salam the head of conservative Manhattan Institute, about much. Christopher Rufo, the uh, right-wing activist instrumental in bringing down Claudine Gay, is, quote, senior fellow and director of initiative on critical race there. But Salam, Harvard 01, once argued, quote, kids who attend elite schools are a mixed bag, and the vast majority are crashing bores. The admissions process tend to select for crashing bores. He was correct. This doesn't mean progressives should join in the current conservative crusade against Harvard. The right opposes education in general because they realise that people thinking for themselves is the only thing that can make their greatest fear a democratisation of the US come to pass. And they recognise that, even at Ivy League schools, uh, that there is a danger of this kind of thinking can occasionally happen. Progressives should not defend Harvard. We could defend the concept of academic insulation from donor pressure, but this is a concept much more than reality. Harvard's $50 billion plus endowment makes it one of the 10 largest hedge funds in the US. Above all, we have to understand Harvard will never defend us. It will always be on the side of money. However, our program of destroying Harvard and its brethren should be in service to a larger positive agenda. What we want is a country of education for everyone. Higher quality public universities, open to people of all ages and incomes, beautiful public schools for everyone before that, and enormous libraries in every American neighbourhood. If you went to an Ivy League school, you know enough to not knowingly, uh, when anyone mentions this famous James Madison quote, quote, Knowledge will forever govern ignorance, and the people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power which knowledge gives, unquote. But what's not taught in class is that this was from a letter Madison wrote to a friend about the importance of public education of all forms everywhere. Outstanding. Including in Kentucky specifically. Quote, Learned institutions ought to be favourite objects with every free people. They throw that light over the public mind, which is the best security against crafty and dangerous encroachments on the public liberty, he wrote. They multiply the educated individuals from uh, among whom the people may elect due to, uh, elect a due portion of their public agents of every description. Unquote. What Madison didn't say was, quote, let's just have a few colleges like the places I went, <laughs> Princeton, and choose every president from them, unquote, where you can recover Madison's vision. But first, we need to bulldoze the institutions in this way. And I'm, I'm, I'm for this. I'm for this. It's 
especially, 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 capital E-S-P, the rest of the words, I can spell it, but I'm just kicked off the time, I just realised we're 40 minutes in, <laughs> especially in fucking places like Oxford, in Cambridge, those two fuckers, oh my gosh, the stranglehold, I'm just going to look something up right quick, I'm just going to hopefully, um, I'm going to hopefully just like try and whack this out quick, uh, let's try and look this up right quick, just want to throw out a quick question on um, the, every Prime Minister that's gone to either Oxford or Cambridge, because I feel... I have a feeling, just a, you know, just a gut feeling that they have. So, I've looked it up. I asked, um, uh, I went and looked it up, I uh, searched how many UK Prime Ministers went to either Oxford or Cambridge. And as of October 22, out of the 57 UK Prime Ministers today, feel free to pause and take a guess before I say it. Ready? 30. 30 were educated at the University of Oxford and 14... At the University of Cambridge. 44 out of the 57 UK Prime Ministers went to either Oxford or Cambridge. That is disgusting. That is actually disgusting. The 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 pipeline is palpable. It's crazy. And it just needs to that that needs to go. Something like that needs to fucking go. I'm sorry. I know just I know this is kind of an you know, kind of like one of those pipe dreams, like, you know, Pan-Africanism, for example, right, but fuck me, I'm adding this, I'm adding this to my arsenal of, of, of principles, honestly, these universities need to fucking go, because the amount of power these places yield is in just, I, I, I don't think I can fathom it, I genuinely don't think I can fathom it, and it, and it needs to go, man, it needs to go, so, Anyway, let's continue, but, oh, oh boy, I'm glad I, I'm, I'm glad I found that article, oh my gosh, outstanding. Okay, let's, um, once again talk about something that I've talked about before, and, uh, just, uh, you know, I'm... This is, you know, I feel kind of sometimes conflicted, right? Because I try and keep every episode as unique as possible in its own way, you know? Just try and keep it... Obviously, the structure of this show has evolved a little bit over the years, you know? I don't, I don't just stick it to um, film and TV, sport and, uh, and life as I used to, and music, um... You know, I don't even know the last time I did music, right? And I initially did that structure because those were the things that I valued the most. And I still do value them the most, right? And But, you know, things like education and law, you know, it, it gives me the ability... Just winding, opening up to stuff like that really opens it up. And, um, you know, now I try and make this show, every episode, as unique as possible. I don't want to constantly go back to things um even though i kind of do that anyway through talking about certain subjects and just you know they they all blend together everything's connected after all right but i i remember talking about um i remember talking about the arts and the lack of funding uh, the arts has several times at least twice um especially during the covid period and um they, you know, the art sector wasn't getting funding during, enough funding, let's just say, it wasn't getting enough funding um, during the COVID period by the UK government. Um, and now, obviously we're in 2024 now, so it's practically been four years since. And, um, and now I'm seeing stuff like this, which I have to read, and it breaks me to think about it. Um and obviously I'm not um, a crusader, I don't, this is, I only use this pod to, you know, just talk about the things I care about, I don't, um, I have way too many things, um, if I had a, if I had the time and money, um, the amount of crusades I'd go on uh, would be just exponential, and would be only, uh, and, the, and the number would only stop when I, you know, won't have the, don't have the energy, um, 
but um, you know, these are just one of those things that I wish I could really have a say in, or just have a, um, or really had a megaphone for this. Um, but anyway, let's jump right in. I don't know why I'm existentialism again. Anyway, so this is um, via the Guardian. It's called uh, a national emergency. UK theatres fear closure after more local funding cuts. Um, it's written by Vanessa Thorpe. Uh, arts and media correspondent um and yeah you know i've talked about this before i've talked about funding i've talked about local funding and government funding and all of that stuff and it just it's unfortunate that all of these places just um refuse to fund the arts and it just doesn't make sense to me um the arts is such a important part of our lives and the respect as a as a entirety as an entire sector is given is just it's just disgusting. Um, so let's jump right into this. The chill blast of damaging cuts to provincial arts venues has returned to Berkshire this weekend as the cash-strapped local authority becomes the latest to scrap its cultural budget. Local MP and former Prime Minister Theresa May was among those to salute a reprieve back in February. Both theatre lovers in the Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead now fear their venues are in jeopardy again since no cultural funds appear in the next ne- next budget. The council does plan... To keep its arts centres and theatres open for another year, the Observer has learned by leaning on uh, maintenance funds or using grants from private developers. It follows an alarm call last week from further east in Suffolk, where Ipswich's new Wolsey Theatre is dealing with the complete axing of county funding. Uh, Suffolk's decision to drop dedicated arts funding comes even more radical moves... uh, yeah, it comes after even more radical moves from councils including Bristol, Nottingham and Birmingham. Loss of local support for the arts is a symptom of the increasing number of councils facing bankruptcy after more than a decade of central funding cuts dating back to the austerity drive by the Conservative-led coalition government. And um, I will... Um, I just remembered this and I feel like... Yeah, I, I literally just remembered this. But... Um, Big ups to the people at Pod Save UK. Um, if you listen to that, um, really good listen. I feel um, uh, hosted by Coco Khan and Nish Kumar. Um, is um, they did they look forward to twenty twenty four episode uh, recently, and uh, I actually emailed them a question about this in some way. I said uh, I, bas- I basically asked them what what has the what is the worst thing that you, you think the Tories have done in their tenure. Um, obviously in this uh, 10 plus years uh, uh, tenure and um, I think it was Nish that mentioned austerity and I think I, th- I think he leaned towards that um, and you know that's there because the, the the ripples the ripples of that still are just ev- nearly everything I think have just have just been ripples from that you know take that and connect it to community centers um, and the lack of them, you know, and youth centres especially, for to give kids something to fucking do after school, for example, right? And then you have, and then after that, it goes to, you know, kids have nothing to do. So what do they do? They either play too many games or, you know, or watch too much TV or whatever. Um, you know, consider those a bad thing if you want, whatever, right? We can have that argument. Or, you know, more extreme things like crime, Right, and then you have, you know, crime stats, knife crime, and then people are like, "Oh no, why, why are the youth committing so much knife crime? Why do you fucking think, right? Because they don't have funding in their youth centres. There are no youth centres. They don't. They're not given anything to do. If you don't give these youth something to do, then what do you expect? Parents can't do everything. That's all I'm saying. But you know, that's austerity. All of this is ripples of austerity. Anyway. Spending on each resident by English councils excluding education fell by almost a quarter in real terms between 09-10 and 2019-20, according to Institute for Fiscal Studies. Some council leaders now warn they are struggling to meet their legal obligations to care for vulnerable children and adults. In this economic climate, arts campaigners and performers fear the lights will go out, soon go out in a string of venues across England, Wales and Northern Ireland. To survive, those theatres will have to drastically reduce their work. Quote, this funding crisis is fast becoming a national emergency, said Jack Gamble, the director and CEO of Campaign for the Arts, adding that while he sympathises with the tough situation council, some councils are in, this can't be the answer. 
Local authorities are the biggest public fund of the arts, he said. They play an absolutely vital role in keeping spaces open, services running and creativity thriving. But in real terms, English councils have almost halved their cultural investment since 2010, unquote. When Windsor Maidenhead Council backtracked last year, restoring some arts funding, May said she was fun- incredibly pleased, adding that Norden Farm Centre for the Arts is invaluable. This weekend, Councillor Joshua Reynolds, a Liberal Lib Dem candid- uh, cabinet member for Communities and Leisure, wanted to allay fresh worries. It may look as if the arts budget is not there, but we'll use other funds from developers and then work over this year to find a new scheme to support Norden Farm. And the council actually owns the old court as well as the Theatre Royal Windsor, so uh, there we can use building maintenance funds, unquote. But wider prospects remain bleak. In his first 2024 editorial for the journal Arts Professional, Neil Puffett made regional and civic funding top priorities. Quote, pressure on grassroots arts organisations is likely to increase as much of the lo- as much of local government is facing bankruptcy and the prospect of cutting all non-statutory statutory spending. He wrote this weekend, urging central government to safeguard cultural venues across the country. Across the country. So, my mouth is a little bit dry. Speaking from the eye of the Suffolk Storm, artistic director Douglas Rintoul uh, said he believes the new Wolsey Theatre he runs will manage to stay open despite an 11% cut to its overall subsidies. On, uh, quote, on top of previous cuts, it means we have no wiggle room and must make it must make very difficult decisions. It's a shock, particularly after the pandemic, unquote. Funding from Ipswich Borough Council will continue. But without the venue's usual triple lock of secure national, county and civic funding, it will be harder to bring further grants. People are responding to the threat, which is good, said Rintoul, but Ipswich is not like the rest of the, country, uh, rest of the county. One third of the young people here are living in poverty, and there are high, no high net wealth individuals who can donate all major local businesses. This is what I'm talking about, ladies and gentlemen. It's all connected. In Nottingham, where grants to the Playhouse and Nottingham Contemporary are in doubt from April, the fact that the council funding for the city's food bank is also in peril highlights. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, sorry, just need to let that wash over me. <sighs> wow, food bank, yeah? Alright. The fact that the council's funding for the food city's food bank is also in peril highlights a problem arts campaigners often face. If cash is scarce, how can they compete with services for people in dire need? Rintoul uh, thinks the best response was laid, uh, laid out in 2017, all parliamentary inquiry into the value of the arts. Quote, it showed how culture brings in investment and solves social problems, but there is a lack of willingness to accept the arts can help, he said. Suffolk wants us to find alternative ways to fund our community work, but we are doing this that already. There is social prescribing from the NHS, for example. The NHS understands the value of the arts. Why can't the council? It seems so short term, unquote. In September... Cultural bodies, including the Actors uh, Actors Union Equity and the Campaign for the Arts, issued an urgent plea for Parliament to step in and protect local arts funding, warning that uh, quote-unquote treasured theatres up and down the country were in trouble. Since then, in December, Claire Reddington, chief executive of Bristol's Watershed Cinema, has complained her city council, quote, doesn't have a clear cultural strategy, unquote. Speaking to the stage, uh, uh, yeah, speaking to the stage this month, Gamble identified their lack of local funds as the looming danger. Quote, as pressures mount on services, councils have legal duties to provide, especially social care. Um, there are growing risks to everything else. Some councils, such as Birmingham and Nottingham, have effectively declared bankruptcy. Now more than ever, we need to speak up for councils' vital role in local cultural access and funding. Unquote. <sighs> yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, the whole thing. That's what I keep saying, you know, just everything's connected. And, um, the fact that the arts is kind of just one of the first things to be nearly just stabbed to death is, um, just depressing. Um, you know, I, I personally don't, I try and, you know, I consume a lot of art, um, I will say not of, not much of it is local, right? I don't consume local art as as that deep, you know. I go to the uh, I go to the Lee Art Trail for sure. Um, I love the Lee Art Trail, which is a kind of um, how do I word it? It's kind of a local festival of art in some ways, where over a period of time, let's just say two weeks, I think, or a month um, during the summer. 
Um, you have a ton of places around Lee, Westcliff, Southend, um, yeah, in the local area. Um, basically just showing art, just a ton of exhibitions keep, and you know, they just go and you can just walk in and, you know, have a look, obviously, you know, donate and all that kind of stuff, but it's a real good, um, it's a real good place to just see some art during the summer, so it's a great day out, I think, you know, you, you travel, if you participate in it properly, you travel, you know, the whole, the whole town, city, officially right you travel the whole place and you know you you go into these places these spaces and you look at the art is different every single time and it's just unique it's it's, it's nice it's it's a great day out like i said a couple of days out if you really want to put some effort into it um so yeah you know to to hear about you know theaters in this case theaters obviously going in the bin obviously theaters are um, quite a broad concept. It's not just um, you know, you know, ballet or you know, ballrooms or stuff like that. It's you know, theatres, cinemas, instead as well, local cinemas. I fuck with the local cinema. Um, I wish I had a you know proper not just an Odeon. You know what I mean? Um, but um, yeah, you know, it's unfortunate. And um, to see you know places genuine you know noble places like Nottingham and Birmingham go bankrupt is just depressing and sad and uh, to have arts funding uh, thrown in the bin because of it it's just uh, uh, I don't know it's just extremely concerning Okay, let's finish off with something a little bit light, because I feel that's probably been a heavy episode, uh, but necessary as always. Um, so this is relating to why I started with I'm cold, and I clearly need to adapt to winter better. Um, I don't want to, but I feel like I have to. I mean, I've lived in Britain all my life, so it's, it's a bit stupid that I haven't adapted, quote unquote, but I just, I just can't do winter, man. I just My feet are always cold, and it's just, it's just crap. Anyway moaning over let's try and find solutions ladies and gentlemen that's what we're here for solutions as always acknowledging there's a problem solutions let's try and find one so this is uh, by peter stenwinkel um and uh, this is about the curious link between animal animal hibernation and aging and what humans can learn from it this is via the conversations jump home when the cold and dark winter is setting in, some of us envy animals that can hibernate. I've li- I literally said that to a friend the other, uh, the other week. I was like, well, can we just hibernate? Can we just try and see if we could do that? Anyway. It's not- and also, this actually relates to um, work in a genuine way. Uh, meaning that before clocks existed, you would... Um, workers of, you know, all ilks uh, would work less in the winter because it's the winter, right? Um, they would just notoriously work less and um, save it for the important times of, you know, harvesting, for example. And, um, yeah, we're just they would just work less in the winter because it's winter. So like, why do you want to work in winter? Nobody wants to work in winter, so they don't work in winter. But then clocks came in um, and because before people were going by sunlight... Um, now people going by clocks, and then, I'm basically giving you the origins of capitalism, anyways, carry on. This long, deep uh, rest is an example of how nature develops clever solution to difficult problems. In this case, how to survive a long, cold, and dark period without much food or water. But hibernation has closer links to human history than you might expect. An article in a copy of the British Medical Journal from 1900 describes a strange human dormancy-like hibernation called Lotska. Um, that was common among farmers in Pskov, Russia. Um, P-S-K-O-V, so Pskov. Anyway, uh, in this area, food was so scarce during the winter that the problem was solved by sleeping through the dark part of the year. Once a day, people woke up to eat a piece of bread and drink a glass of water. After the simple meal, um, they went back to sleep, and family members then took turns keeping the fire alive. You will also find descriptions in in. Inuit uh, Greenlandic stories of a prolonged hibernation-like sleep period, uh, sleep during the long dark winter months. In parts of Greenland, it is dark from November to the end of January. There is a study from 2020 which suggests the ancient ancestors of man, called hominins, 
hominins, hominins, two ends in there, uh, may have been able to hibernate 400,000 years ago. Bones discovered in a cave in Spain show seasonal disruption and growth, suggesting that one of man's predecessors may have used the same strategy as cave bears to survive long winters. Hibernation is deeper and more complex than usual sleep, including dramatic changes in metabolism. This long resting period combines several conditions linked to longevity, reduced calorie intake, uh, low body temperature and low metabolism. Animals that hibernate usually live longer compared to other species of the same size. Recent studies use epigenic clocks, uh, which map activity within genes over time, suggest that hibernation slows down aging in marmots and bats, so hibernation may hold important clues on how to slow down an aging process. There are different forms of aging, chronological and biological age. Chronological age is actually only about how many revolutions the Earth has circled around the Sun since we were born. It is not time itself that ages us, but rather wear and tear. Biological age measures wear and tear, is a more comprehensive and personal measure of health than chronological age and a better predictor of longevity. A 2023 study established that biological age varies and that a temporary increase, for example, during surgery and stress is reversed when you have recovered. Diseases that are linked to lifestyle and accumulate with age, such as cardiovascular disease, obesity, dementia, and chronic kidney disease, are driven by wear and tear. This result in inflammation or decomposition of the gut microbiota and increase oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is when there are too many free radicals, unstable atoms that damage cells in your body. New science based on epigenic, I'm learning a lot of words today, epigen epigenetic, sorry, I, I missed the T in the previous time I said it, epigenetic clocks um, and lessons from hibernating animals could help us to treat patients who have diseases driven by wear and tear. We could use drugs that may slow down aging. For example, metformin is the main first-line uh, medication for treatment of type 2 diabetes. It re regulates inflammation, insulin sensitivity, and slows down DNA damage caused by oxidative stress. I am saying oxidative, right, good. I just wanted to check since I got the previous one wrong. There is growing evidence that it may help manage other wear and tear diseases, such as cardiovascular disease and long-term use of the drug may be associated with lower cognitive impairment. Learning more about hibernation may benefit human medicine for the treatment of traumatic brain injuries, severe blood loss, preservation of muscle and bone mass, and providing a better protection during organ transplantation. A 2018 study found that mimicking hibernation conditions for the storage of renal grafts uh, from deceased donors seem to improve their preservation. Muscular skeletal degeneration is often determined by genes, but these genes seem to be deactivated in hibernating bears. There are long-lived non-hibernating animals we can learn from too, such as the Greenland shark, naked mole rat, Icelandic clam, and rough-eyed rockfish. These species have developed uh, superior mechanisms that protect them against aging. It seems like protection against inflammation, oxidative stress, and modifications of proteins that happen with age are mechanism in mechanism that, in general, benefit all long-lived animals. Genetic studies of rough-eyed rockfish, which can live for over 200 years, suggest that a food group called flavonoids flavonoids, um, is related to longevity. Citrus fruits, berries, onions, apples, and parsley are high in flavonoids, uh, which have anti-inflammatory properties and protect against organ damage, for example, from chemicals or aging. The 2023 study of rock eye rockfish found that one set of its genes, which could be linked to longevity, were associated with flavonoid metabolism. So a long-lived fish may have something to teach us about what to eat to live longer. This has nothing to do with my cold feet. <laughs> This just dawned on me as we reached the end of the article. This has nothing to do with feet, but and and cold in general. But winter months and obviously you know aging. So a little bit of a miss on on my personal front, but good information nevertheless. Um, lesson from nature and hibernating animals. Tell us the reserving cells, regulation, regulation, metabolism, and genetic adaptations play key roles in longevity. Our lifestyle and eating habits are our best tools to mimic some of these mechanisms. There is still so much we don't understand about hibernation, but we do know that normal sleep is connected to longevity too. For example, a March 2023 study showed that with good quality sleep, you can add five years to your life of men and two and a half years if you're a woman. 
why, I don't know why five for us and two and a half for women, but here we are. Uh, the research is to find good quality sleepers getting seven to eight hours of sleep per day, not needing sleep medication, and waking up feeling rested at least five days a week. Animals have huge variations in sleeping patterns, from bears and marmots hibernating eight months of the year to elephants that only get two hours a day. How elephants can become so old while sleeping so little is still a mystery to scientists. Finding out how nature resolved these extremes may help scientists decipher new ways to improve human health. Well, I ain't improving mine at this point in time. Obviously, if I eat my onions and shit like that, when I'm just, I'm literally about to end this podcast and go eat some wings, but... (laughs) So, you know, there's always tomorrow. Um, And with that said, ladies and gentlemen... From the 5 EPN, this is Ivan Chai Taylor. This film was good. Injury music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to your music for the track. You can find both their links in the full show notes. And thanks to Nappy High, a friend of 5 Nappy High. For the BZ use charismatic for the internet. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, as I eat, as I go to eat my chicken wings, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.